I'm Rick Wilson. Welcome back to The Enemies List. Our guest today is an amazing writer. His name is Chris Whipple. He's written for Vanity Fair and a host of other publications. He's written some amazing books, including The Gatekeepers, The Spymasters, and now with the fight of his life, he dives deep inside the Joe Biden White House in its first two years. He's also got some absolutely riveting things to tell us about the terrifying weeks between the election and January 6th, and January 6th and the transition. Chris is going to be our guest today. We're going to get into how the Biden White House operates and the challenges they've faced and the surprises they've had. So let's get to it. There was also maintained what was called an enemies list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. With us today on The Enemies List is Chris Whipple. Chris is the author of a new book called The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. We're going to look today into the to, to the inner workings of what's happening on Team Biden. Chris is a very, very talented observer of American politics. He understands how the interconnections between personality and politics come together in big organizations. And he's going to give us, uh, I think, some really valuable perspective. Uh, Chris, welcome to the show and tell us about the book. Rick, great to be here. Um, it's it's really an honor. <clears throat> so, so I should begin by saying there's a limit to how much I can share with you about the book because the the pub date is January 17, and my editor would uh, would, would be <laughs> after me. I'd be in huge trouble if I gave away too much. But having having said that, let, it, me, let me just Tease say it. <laughs> that it's a hell of a story. It's it's a hell of a story. Um, and people have asked me, why did you write a book about Joe Biden's White House? And my answer is, how could you not? I mean, this is the political mm -hmm. story of our time. This is a guy who came into office in January of 2021, facing the most daunting challenges since FDR, a once in a century pandemic, global warming, a crippled economy, uh, racial injustice, a, a bloody assault, the aftermath of the bloody assault on the U.S. Capitol, uh, and all that before Vladimir Putin decided to invade a democracy in the heart of Europe. So, you know, how could anybody with a storytelling bone in his body not want to tell that story? So um, it's, it's, as I say, it's my, as my previous books uh, were heavy lifts. The gatekeepers and the White House chiefs of staff was 50 years of political history. The spy masters and the CIA directors was right. was even even bigger in a sense. <clears throat> and but I have to say that this was the heaviest lift of all. I, when you're writing about a sitting White House, you're writing about history as it's unfolding. It's like designing an airplane in mid-flight. You're getting you're getting hit by wind shear and and you 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 make a flight path and you get blown off course by a covid variant you have no idea where you're landing 
and somehow you do it. And you do it with a White House that is arguably the most battened down, disciplined, leak-proof White House of modern times. So it was a challenge, but in the end, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it. You know, something I observed years ago, Chris, was that good White Houses leak on purpose and bad White Houses just leak. And there does not seem to be a leaky White House. This is not one of those places where, um, where there's a constant drumbeat of, but I said in the meeting, or I said to this, you know, I'm trying to save us, but this other person in the administration won't do it. It seems a lot more hermetic. It seems a lot more sealed up, as you just noted, than a lot of prior administrations. Well, Rick, the bar was low. <laughs> you know, Rick, Ron Klein came into that corner office in the West Wing uh, following Mark Meadows. And I've, I've written previously uh, that Meadows owns the title of worst White House chief of staff in history. No question. And that was, and that was prior to January mm-hmm. 6th, by the way. Um, but there's no question that Ron Klein deserves a lot of credit. This is a guy who really came into that job with probably better prepared, not probably, but better prepared than any previous White House chief of staff in history. He had worked for nine previous Democratic yeah. White House chief of staff. Right. He knew the job cold. He'd known Joe Biden for 30 years. And Klain deserves a, a lot of credit. I mean, he wasn't perfect. Uh, we can talk more about his uh, tenure if you like. But but he certainly set the tone uh, for a for a White House that was a pretty a pretty well-oiled machine. I think that's right. And I think that there's a, do, do you think people underestimated Joe Biden as a, as a, as a, I mean, I think people understood Biden was a creature of the Senate um, and a guy who'd been around DC a long time and a former VP. Do you think people underestimated him? I have a sense that they did, that they didn't think he would run a good organization, that, that this was a scale he couldn't quite, even people who supported him, I, I think were a little surprised at how the White House has operated in the first uh, two years now. Yeah, I absolutely do think that Joe Biden was was underestimated um, by everybody. Um, and I think that he may obviously made some it, in, a, in a way, it's a tale not of, of two presidencies, at least. Uh, it's really a tale of three presidencies, if you include the, the transition, which I write mm-hmm. about in my book, which was the most contentious and dangerous in history. And by the way, there's an excerpt from the book about that period uh, that's out in right, Vanity I saw Fair that. I read right that. now. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> so you had the whole transition, then you had the first year of the presidency, and it, and it, and it was tough um, at first. And I think, obviously, Afghanistan and the arguably premature declaration that he was beating the, the coronavirus on <laughs> that July 4th weekend, only to be bitten by the Delta variant, um, and that was a that was a rough summer. But if you look at the arc of the first two years of the Biden presidency, there's just no question that he hit his stride uh, shortly thereafter. And I think um, Klain deserves credit. Sure. Um, certainly, the White House staff deserves it. But but you have to. Biden is the guy in charge. And he deserves the lion's share. At the end of the day, it always comes down to that. It, it's it's the guy behind the resolute desk um, who who I w- will, will either get the blame or the credit for every bit of it. Um, I'm wondering if if you talk to Biden insiders and folks that you could talk about from the book, 
of what they thought they would be getting versus what they got. Because I think January 6th really transformed from White House people I've spoken to their perceptions of what they were about to do. I think in, in the beginning, they thought they were going to be a sort of, uh, not in a bad way, but a transitional kind of cleanup from the disaster that had been Trump. I don't think there's any question about it. I can, I can certainly share this with you from the book. And that is this, the, the one thing that surprised Joe Biden more than anything else as president was the staying power of Trumpism. Um, I don't think he thought it was, uh, you, you know, Gore versus Bush right. and that it would all be over uh, after, the, after the fight in the courts. But I think he thought it would fade in time. I think he thought, I know he thought that he had a mandate. Mm-hmm. Uh, he won by he did. 7 million votes. Uh, this, this was not Gore v. Bush. And that in time, the MAGA crowd would, would fade. Um, it did not. Um, <clears throat> you can argue now about whether it's in its death throes or not. But the fact that it was such a, such a huge factor through the first two years of the Trump presidency, I think, shocked Joe Biden. Support for Rick Wilson's The Enemies List comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Wilson. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Wilson. Odoo. Modern management made simple. You know, I think I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I really think they probably were thinking, wow, we're going to have a lot of work to do on COVID, not, uh, oh, this guy's going to try to burn down the country, um, which is, you know, it, I think it did reframe his presidency in a fundamental way um, from more of a administrative transitional figure to a guy who had to, at, at, at his age, you know, I'm not, I'm not casting aspersions on his performance because of his age, but just recognizing the reality of it, a guy who has at his age, there would have been a graceful sort of one term scenario out there. I think in some people's heads where he could have spent four years, you know, cleaning up some of the messes and said time to pass the baton. But now he is definitely um, the prohibitive favorite for the Democratic nomination. I think all that talk is dying down quickly. Um, but it, 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 it... And look, Trump... Yeah. It really... I think it's... I, I still keep coming back to the surprise nature of the job. It always surprises everyone who takes the job because something changes radically. But in his case, it was an even more fundamental, uh, in my view, uh, transition because January 6th was such a moment of... of compl- I think between Dobbs and January 6th, I think it catalyzed a very different sort of White House than they had uh, in their minds going in. Rick, I think that's all true. And I think the staying power of Trumpism shocked Biden, as I said. But I'm not sure it's the decisive factor in Biden wanting to run again. This is a guy who, for every, every time he's had an opportunity to to think about running for president, he's, he's thought very seriously. I mean, every... From the time he started thinking about becoming president, he's either run for president or thought about running every four years. When I was a newbie uh, in this business, I read What It Takes by Richard Ben Kramer. Yeah, and that was my first, 
like strong impression of Joe Biden, yeah. you know, of, of why he wanted to do this. Yeah. And Andy Card once said something to me that that, that rang true, George W. Bush's first yep. chief of staff. And he said, know, he said Chris, you know, if anybody tells you that they're leaving the White House voluntarily, they're probably lying to you. <laughs> uh, and I think this this applies especially to presidents. Who who was the last president to walk away from it voluntarily? LBJ. LBJ. Uh, he he's he's the exception to the rule. And when you get into that office, I think that you Biden is no exception. He he wants to stay on. Well, I think that's right. And I th- and I look and I think he's frankly in a good position both now. I I, I do think. The 2022 election results have settled a lot of the of the chatter because it was such a a powerful year for you know the, the, the both the Democrats and for sort of pro democracy candidates, um, and I think th- I think that the 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 White House has walked a few narrow lines pretty effectively, and I think it's given people some confidence. I mean, would they like more out of the DOJ? Sure. Are they going to get more out of the DOJ? Probably not, because DOJ seems to be doing what it's what it ought to be doing. But I think it, uh, in terms of restoring stability, he's done a, a tremendous job at restoring a sort of sense of like having an anchor point in Washington that people can sort of go, okay, that's what they're going to do. These are professionals; they're not going to burn the house down. Um, you know, we can trust them to make a deal, etc. Um, but I, I do want to ask you a question: How much of the sort of tension that we see on Capitol Hill a lot now in the sort of culture of the Democrats, of the progressive side versus the more traditional Biden, Clinton, Obama style Democrats. How much of that is playing out inside this White House and in how they're how they're governing in your mind? I don't I don't see a lot of it playing out within the White House. I mean, I think that this is a really close knit, uh, almost familial um, operation in the White House when you think about at least Biden's inner circle. And I'm talking now about about Ron Klain mm. and Steve Reschetti right. and Mike Donilon and and uh, Anita, Anita, uh, Anita Donald, Donald, though she sure. hasn't been there quite as long. Um, I think that I don't think that there's a, you know, Ron, Rahm Emanuel uh, used to say that, uh, show me a White House where there aren't white hats and black hats fighting for the soul of the presidency and I'll show you a White House that isn't getting very much done. Uh, the, you know, the, the Obama White House under Rahm uh, was was full of fights and 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 sure. dissension about about and fights and battles for the soul of the presidency. That's really not this White House. This White House is really, I think, much more uh, an example of everybody pulling in the same direction. And I don't sense that, uh, you know, that and that's what I think is laughable about people who say that, um, you know, that Joe Biden is a socialist. Um, <laughs> no, no. You know, I don't think Bernie Sanders or AOC would 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 agree with that. And I think you'd be hard pressed really to point to a lot of really progressive uh, victories in, in the first two years. Um, so I, th- I think. Joe Biden has, has governed from the place he's always been most comfortable. I think he's been a centrist. I think that's about right. I, I, I mean, look, he's that's clearly his comfort zone. And clearly he hasn't, you know, he hasn't either A, sees the means of production or B, sees the means of production, which both sides, you know, either wanted or feared respectively. 
everybody's got a morning ritual. Uh, I know I do. And I want to feel like I'm getting my day going. I want to feel like I'm moving. And more than coffee sometimes, it's making sure you're clean, squared away, put together. You can get your day started by upping your shave game with Harry's sleekest razor yet, the craft handle. I like to use it because I've got to shave this giant dome of mine every day. So I got to keep it shiny. I have a beard, but I keep my neck clean front and back, do all the miscellaneous trimming. And the new craft handle, it actually is a lot more precision, at least that I found, with the new grip. I really like it a lot. You'll be getting quality shaving for a really amazing price. For now, they're offering the craft handle starter set for 10 bucks. It's a $17 value, so this is something you really should try. And if you don't like it, it's on them, guys. They stand behind the product. They guarantee it. How can you get a hold of the craft handle, the latest, greatest from Harry's? It's simple. Get it delivered to your door for 10 bucks at harrys.com slash enemies list. That's harrys.com slash enemies list. Um, so you talked a little bit about uh, you know, things we can't talk about in the book, but we can mm-hmm. talk about your amazing article that is an excerpt in Vanity Fair about the incredible chaos uh, and the the shit show of the of the transition. I'm hoping you can summarize that for us a little bit and tell us a little bit about what you found out about what was happening between the two camps as 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 we as we went from election day to January 6th and then beyond into the tra- into the final days before the the, the 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 handover. Yeah, it's an extraordinary story. The the as I say the the, the story of the Biden White House is really a, a story of three three presidencies and, and and the first was really that whole period starting a year before he was inaugurated. Uh, it, it began with uh, Ted Kaufman as good friend, um, putting pulling the transition together. Uh, but the extraordinary thing about this is really that the extent to which the peaceful transfer of power really depends on the goodwill of, of people within the White House uh, and within the the, the other uh, with, among the other team um, to make it happen. And, and so it thereby really hangs by a thread. And mm-hmm. the truth was in this case, which was obviously the most contentious and dangerous and as it turned out, bloody transition since the Civil War, right. it really came down to a handful of people, staffers within the Trump White House who under Donald Trump's nose and without his knowledge, we're making sure that the transfer of power took place. Chief among them, a guy named Chris Liddell, right. who was deputy chief of staff. Liddell is a New Zealander, came here, made a lot of money, became a big success as CFO of uh, Microsoft and General Motors, worked for the Romney transition, mm-hmm. came into the Trump White House. And it, it, in the final days of the Trump presidency, and I was astonished that this story had not been told until until my book, um, Liddell was the guy who was basically quietly carrying out the transition, having conferences with people like Josh Bolton, George W. Bush's former chief of staff, sure. and others who would talk him off the ledge every time he was about to resign because of something Trump had done. And they all told him, no, you've got to stay because if you do not stay, how will the transfer of power take place? And Liddell stayed on. It's an incredible, it's an amazing story. It reads like a thriller, I'm told. Uh, and um, it's, 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 again, an, an example of how we came much closer than anybody realized 
to that transfer of power breaking down? I, I mean, I think I think people underestimate, and I think it's always been a sort of political luxury in American life, is we don't think of our country as a place where between two presidencies, there's a potential for violence and shock and chaos and blood. And and this one really, it, it, it did reach that point. And it, it did reach yeah. that level. Um, you talked a lot about like their, their, the, when they came into this and Klain was worrying about like, we have a list of A, B, C, D, E, and F. If, if we get A done, I'll be happy. And then it just kept, everything kept falling short Basically, it seems like because of one man, Mark Meadows. Do you think Meadows was just afraid of taking anything to Trump or afraid of having his fingerprints on a, on, on a transfer of power um, that, that, that the MAGA base would eventually turn on him for? Well, I mean, I dislike Mark on a number of levels, um, but it's, it just struck me that, that he was such a point. He could have, he could have, I won't say like, restored his reputation, but at least come out of the White House as not looking like Mark Meadows. The really stunning thing about Mark Meadows to me is the extent to which he was involved up to his eyeballs in conspiring to overturn the election with Donald Trump. And yet at the same time, Meadows was telling everybody what they wanted to hear. I, you know, I, I describe him not so much as a chief of staff as a kind of glad handing maitre d who would, uh, who would, right. who would right. tell everybody what they wanted to hear at, at every turn. And so, for example, while he was helping Trump to overturn the election or trying to, he was quietly telling his deputy, Chris Liddell, yeah, go ahead. Just make sure the boss doesn't see you doing it but keep the transition, wheels of the transition turning. It was almost as though he was thinking, in case this coup stuff doesn't work out, you know, I'm covering myself. I don't know. I can't, I can't psychoanalyze Mark Meadows. I don't think anybody can. But it, it, it was baffling the way he seemed to be trying to have it both ways. It, it, I mean, it, in some ways, it's totally on brand for this guy. The, the, you know who, who I knew when he was in 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 the body when he was in the house, um, and and he always struck me as sort of a you know one of the one of the you know frat bros as I call them the backslapping guys and and which is why you know as an ass kisser he's unparalleled and he loves and Trump loves that around around him. So when you were, yeah you know I used to think yeah. I used to think the defining image of Mark Meadows would be him grinning into the camera that, uh, on the at the ellipse on the morning of January 6th and holding Trump's coat in effect as he went out to incite the mob. Yep. I now think the defining image of Mark Meadows will be the guy sitting on the couch in the chief of staff's office, scrolling through his phone mm-hmm. while Cassidy Hutchinson begged him right. to do something to save lives. It, it, when she testified that, that it was such a striking and, and such a, uh, you know, the, if you were looking for what does moral collapse look like, that's what moral collapse looks like. That's what exactly. stopping, you know, ending the part of your of your life where you where you give a damn about anyone else um, and and the consequences of your action. That's exactly what it yeah. looks like. So, exactly. so as you were reporting out this part of the story, um, what was Trump's state of mind during all this? In in terms of, of did he want to cooperate with the transition? Did he want to 
Did he, did he have any desire at all to, to, to do anything? Or was he just running down this rabbit hole with Eastman and, and, and Giuliani and Cleta Mitchell and the rest of the, of the, the legal clown show that was around him? Well, I can't get inside Trump's head any more than I could Meadows, I don't think. But, but it seems to me that he was all in on overturning the election in any, any way, shape, or form. And as we, as we all know, he tried on multiple fronts to, uh, to overturn the election. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I honestly think that <clears throat> the, the, tra- the effort to, to, to carry out the transition by Chris Liddell, among others, uh, was something that he, he, that he literally had, not literally, but he had the wool pulled over his eyes. He had no idea that they were carrying out the transition. Uh, Ted Kaufman, who was the chair of the Biden transition, right. told me that he 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 was shocked. He couldn't believe it when at one point, and this is in the Vanity Fair excerpt, uh, at one point he sent a legal document over to Meadows. By law, Meadows was required to sign this document saying that the transition would go forward. Mm-hmm. Kaufman thought there was no way, no chance he would sign it. And yet all of a sudden his fax machine lit up and back came the fax <laughs> signed, signed by Mark Meadows, which is a prized possession now for Ted I Kaufman. would frame that damn thing. So as, as, as the transition window between the 6th and the 21st, I find that to be one of the most fraught. I mean, Biden went out that day and gave a speech at the Queen Theater, as you report in the Vanity Fair article. Did he realize at that moment that his presidency, how different his presidency would be? Because that strikes me as that, I mean, that was his first, to my mind, he hadn't been sworn in yet, but he effectively was president because I think Trump abdicated it, uh, you know, in a sort of de facto way the minute he sent people to, to, you know, attack the Capitol. I mean, yeah, that I think moment that was, must have that been something that really shaped him. It crystallized everything, I think, uh, for Joe Biden. Of course, it, it began, as Biden has often said, and I believe this is true, with uh, Charlottesville, that when sure. he saw what was happening in Charlottesville, that was the moment that when he when he flipped the switch and said, I'm running, uh, you know, that was a door he felt he had to close, that this was a dangerous place that right. the country was headed. But I think the morning of January 6th, and I describe it in the book, uh, he's sitting there with Bruce Reed, mm-hmm. his longtime aide, and they're, yep. and they're writing a, a speech about small business to give that afternoon. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it was, and Bruce Reed suddenly says, I think we're going to need another speech. Uh, and <clears throat> they both watched it. They, the, the TV was on mute, but they watched it unfolding and then obviously turned up the volume and, and got to work. On a, on a whole different uh, speech. So this book comes out when, Chris? Tell us a little more about uh, when when we can expect to, you can pre-order it now on Amazon and all the other places, I'm sure. It's out on January 17th and you and people who are interested can uh, pre-order wherever books are sold, including Amazon or independent uh, booksellers. And um, as I say, it, 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 it's, it's, it's a hell of a story. And I, and I think one of the reasons it is, is, is that I, I wrote it in real time, which, as I said before, was, was a challenge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but at the same time, I, it, it, it unfolds as the last two years took place, but really from, the, from inside the White House. 
And I really think that it reads less like a, a White House history than like a thriller because, you know, Joe Biden's presidency, at the end of the day, it's a thriller and we don't know the ending yet, do we? No, we sure um, don't. So anyway, I, I um, <clears throat> it's a book that um, was, the, it's the most difficult project I've ever undertaken, but uh, at the end of the day, I think it was worth it. Well, Chris, thank you so very much for coming on the Enemies List today. Where can we find you on social media? Great to be on. Uh, so you can go to my website at chriswhipple.net, and you can find, uh, when you go there, you can find links to the Vanity Fair excerpt, uh, links to buy the book. Uh, shortly, there will be the Publishers Weekly Review. Happy to say that it was a good one that, that will be up there as well. Uh, and anything people uh, want to know, you can find there. Outstanding. Well, thank you again for joining us today, Chris. And uh, we look forward to having you back on the podcast when the book comes out. We can talk some more. Rick, my pleasure. I really look forward to it. Thanks so much. You know, it's almost too easy to dunk on Marjorie Taylor Greene most of the time. She comes across as clownish, comes across as bizarre, comes across as silly, unsophisticated, some sort of weird inbred mountain woman, tantric, whatever the hell she is. But I think this week really had a story that displayed just why Marjorie Taylor Greene is way up on the enemies list. This week at the New York Young Republicans Club, which has become, frankly, this sort of alt-right bastion, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene came up to the stage and made a little speech where she said, that if she and Steve Bannon had organized the January 6th attack, it would have succeeded and they would have been armed. So I want to know, Marge, who were you going to shoot? Who would you like to have shot that day? Who would you like to have your supporters and minions that charged the Capitol that day? Who would you like for them to have killed? Capitol cops? DC police? Staffers? Members? Make a list. And, you know, she tried to walk it back. It was bullshit. She tried to say, oh, I'm just joking. You don't recognize sarcasm. Marge doesn't do sarcasm. She was feeding the monster. She was feeding the beast. She was feeding the people in the Fox News media ecosystem and in the increasingly confident and dangerous armed insurrection wing of the Republican Party um, exactly what they wanted, exactly what they needed. They want to hear that. They want to have permission built around their desires. You know, a little part of me really wishes that Marjorie Taylor Greene would just come right out and say it. She runs the Republican Party in the House. Kevin McCarthy is her meat puppet, a stooge, a patsy. And I wish she would come out and just say it. I'm in control now. I run this place now. We're going to do it my way now. Because honestly, it would make it easier for the confrontation that inevitably must happen with this person. She is the perfect apotheosis of where the Republican Party is today. It is a combination of danger and ignorance. It is a combination of skank and, and crank. And Marjorie Taylor Greene really is this week's person to top the enemies list. I would tell you, Marge, to get your shit together but it's not possible.
This has been The Enemies List. And if you've been enraged or engaged or enlivened by this week's episode, let's do something about it. This podcast is part of Resolute Square, a new front in the war to preserve democracy. We were looking for a place to fight back against the MAGA media, and this is it. In addition to this podcast and many others, each week, Resolute Square members will sit down with me and other founders for an intimate meeting of the minds, talking about what's really going on behind the curtain of American politics and analyzing the minds and the motivations of the people that are shaping this country's future, good and bad, along with exclusive analysis and insight from our newsletters, which are anything but conventional wisdom. Become a partner in this fight at ResoluteSquare.com. And folks, if you could like, subscribe, and rate the podcast, I would be enormously grateful. We reached number two in the political podcast listings, and I cannot tell you how grateful and how heartfelt your support has been for this podcast and for these conversations. And we look forward to many, many more. Thanks again. <laughs>